This is Talking Cities, where we meet the people making cities brilliant. My name is James Rosenwax, and, uh, and I lead the Buildings and Places business in Australia and New Zealand for AECOM, a global infrastructure company with offices in more than 150 cities around the world. Today I'm recording in Sydney, and joining me is the Acting Chief Executive of Infrastructure Australia, uh, an AECOM alumnus, Anna Chow. Hi, Anna. Hi, James. Thank you very much. Anna leads the ongoing development of the National Infrastructure Priority List and the assessment of uh, project business case submissions, which are considered by the Infrastructure Australia Board. She is a leading applied economist in infrastructure with 27 years professional experience specialising in transport economics. That's right. It's probably 28 years coming up soon, I think, yes. Oh, gosh. So, Years amounting, yes. Yeah, oh, I just don't believe you. Oh, I don't. Too sweet, James. <laughs> so she has led uh, numerous cost-benefit analysis and business cases uh, as both a practitioner and a reviewer in a range of infrastructure sectors, including transport, water and waste, energy, law enforcement, justice, IT and the environment. Basically, Anna and her team at Infrastructure Australia try to take the politics out of infrastructure decisions, bring in independent and rigorous assessment of projects to ensure transparency and accountability to investment decisions. Is that a good synopsis of uh, what you all do here? You've taken the words right out of my mouth, James. Look, I, I think it's really important what we do here in terms of providing independent advice based on rigorous assessment of projects in particular, um, business cases that come to us that are seeking funding. Yeah, that's your purpose, isn't it? Independence. Yes. Well, probably worthwhile talking a little bit about IA in terms of um, what our roles and responsibilities are. Um, a lot of people sometimes don't know what we do. And we're an independent advisor. We advise um, all levels of government on uh, infrastructure investment priorities. In particular, we seek to um, identify nationally significant problems and opportunities and making sure that uh, the solutions identify um, to meet those challenges are actually uh, good, worthwhile investments. Yeah, okay. So do you have a methodology for doing that? You know, do people submit projects, their wish list of infrastructure projects or people, as I say, people? So who are the people firstly? Is it uh, state government, local government, federal government? And, uh, and do you have then a, a methodology for assessing and mm -hmm. prioritising the projects that get submitted to you? Uh, certainly, all our assessments are actually done in accordance with our uh, assessment framework, which is both a procedure manual and a detailed technical guidance on how cost benefit analysis is done. But before we talk about that, it's probably important to talk about the infrastructure priority list, which is why people make these submissions to us. They make submission who are really uh, state and territory government and private sector to have their projects recognised on the infrastructure priority list as a national priority. They come from a number of different sectors, such as transport, energy, water, telecommunications, and also social infrastructure. Oh, that's interesting. So it's not just roads and rail. There's, no. There's, and more, there's more to infrastructure. Definitely. And even within transport, we've now evaluated an airports project, for example. Uh, we've looked at a bus project. We really are very uh, holistic in our approach in terms of ensuring that um, transport networks are genuinely multimodal and that each mode plays its role in the transport network. Wow. So what's the most, I guess, non-typical infrastructure project you would have assessed? Like to me, a typical would be a road uh, yes. or a railway. Yep. 
And certainly roads and railways um, do dominate a lot of the uh, landscape because uh, transport is still a sector that looks for um, Commonwealth funding. But mm. we've really actually diversified our portfolio beyond just road and rail and in particular to social infrastructure. So you might have seen the work we've done with uh, University of Tasmania's uh, Hobart STEM project that's really relocating their STEM faculty from the suburb of Sandy Bay to Hobart and it's also uh, very pivotal in terms of uh, potentially regenerating and revitalising Hobart CBD. Okay, so that's following the trend of, uh, of bringing educational institutions downtown, really, isn't it? We've, we've seen that with uh, University of Newcastle, up in Newcastle, um, and, uh, and now we're going to see that down in Hobart as well. Is that... Um, we've certainly recognised it as a priority project on our infrastructure priority list, and it really is a case of how anchor institutions could play a role in planning livable cities, You know how they can actually contribute to the economic development and the productivity improvements of a city. So it must have stacked up. We were confident that the benefits would be greater than costs in the long run in terms of delivering real benefits to the people of Hobart. Mm. Anna, I normally ask... What is your favourite city and why? But I know you've lived in a lot of cities around the world. Oh. Um, we we jump straight into business there, okay? Yep. Because you are all business, Anna. Um, but uh, <laughs> but I'm interested <laughs> in hearing a bit around um, some of the cities you've lived and uh, worked in around the world and uh, what makes great cities. Yeah, I have lived and worked in a number of cities. I've been very fortunate in my past life as a consultant to actually have such opportunities. Look, I was born in Hong Kong, so I lived there for quite some time, um, probably before MTR was open. But even back then, it was a vibrant city with a multimodal focus in terms of transport. So even as a young girl, I was very interested in buses, minibuses, the ferries across the Hong Kong Harbour. and The um, Star Ferry? Yeah, the Star Ferry, that's mm, right. I used to going. watch my dad go to work on the Star Ferry across the Hong Kong. So Wow. Even from a young age, I could see the how systems actually work, and Hong Kong's probably a very good example of that. So even before MTR was built, they had a multimodal transport network, had a very vibrant nightlife, and I think those are some of the elements of successful cities. Then migrated to Sydney and certainly grew up in Sydney and have... Uh, lived and worked here for some time um, in different phases. And, you know, we have a beautiful harbour, but the harbour itself actually presents serious transport challenges. And over the years, we've watched the city grow in how to um, meet those challenges to provide um, access to all services, access to jobs, and to ensure that, you know, the transport network can be as efficient as possible in delivering people to their homes, to their workplaces, to their um, education locations, mm. ensuring that we actually have access to those places by public transport. And I think Sydney has also grown enormously in terms of its role in terms of um, employment centre and its capabilities. And not to mention, we still have been able to maintain beautiful green spaces all around us. Mm. But I guess it's not only Sydney, is it? It's, um, you know, Australia in general is growing quickly. That's right. I mean, I've, I've spent... Population projections of 38 million mm. by 2050. That's, mm. It's incredible. I, you know, I remember I wanted 17 million, it seems like, just the other day. Yes, and... Uh, in my time, I've worked in Melbourne and actually certainly seen Melbourne grow um, very strongly, and particularly in the CBD of late. Um, it's really uh, the western end of the city has really transformed mm. quite dramatically. And even smaller cities like Canberra has really grown significantly in the last five to ten You've years. You've lived in Canberra, haven't you? Yes, I actually worked in Canberra for five months uh, straight, so was basically oh, seconded to Canberra. Yeah, yes, I, I whilst remember. I was at ACOM, actually, yes. Yeah. So that, that was an interesting period of time and got to know Canberra very well, which uh, I have quite a soft spot for from time to time. Mm, I do too. It's a great place to eat. 
Yes, and also I think uh, it's got some great um, you know tourism spots that, like um, the National Gallery, mm. the National Library is great. Mm. Really got a lot of um, tourism attractions that hopefully continue to draw domestic and international visitors. Yeah. So we're going to go back to IA here, Infrastructure Australia, for our uh, international listeners. Is IA a unique body? Is it unique for a country to have the function of an IA, an independent assessor of uh, infrastructure? Well, to our knowledge, I think IA is the longest surviving um, infrastructure body really uh, in the world. We've been uh, in existence continuously for the last 10 years. In fact, we've celebrated our 10th anniversary earlier this year. And we are really the only one to actually maintain an infrastructure priority list mm. uh, in the way we do. There have certainly been a development of I-bodies throughout Australia at the state and territory level, and um, they vary in degrees of independence, and they sometimes are set up to do different things as well. So clearly it depends on the remit. Some of the I-bodies are really task with um, delivering business cases instead of evaluating business cases. Mm. Others um, do the project assurance role, but also uh, deliver projects as well. So mm. we have a wide range of I-bodies in Australia, but mm. Infrastructure Australia is unique in that we you don't, don't, do them. We don't deliver them. projects. No. We uh, evaluate them and provide advice on that basis at, yeah. at an independent level. We report to independent board uh, and that's unique as well. Yeah, and you survived multiple changes of leadership in this country as well. Yes, and in fact... Um, which, uh, which is testament to the independence, I mean, really. That's right. The amendment in 2014, which led to the uh, establishment of an independent board, really, I think, marks the rebirth of IA in terms of operating under even more independent uh, framework and actually revitalising the infrastructure priority list and institutionalising that list mm. as a menu for decision makers um, in terms of what would be good investments to have in the infrastructure space. Mm. So hypothetically, you're at a barbecue on a Sunday afternoon uh, and someone says to you, what's your greatest achievement at, uh, at IA in the last 10 years? Um, what would you say that would be? Oh, look, I think IA has a number of greatest hits. If we're going to go through the collection, I think it's important to acknowledge, you know, the significance of the uh, first infrastructure audit in terms of the 2015 audit, what it did in terms of establishing a truly evidence-based approach to problem solving, identifying where the gaps are, where some of the challenges are. That then led to the um, Australian Infrastructure Plan, which was released in 2016. And the recommendations made in those plan really set the benchmark in terms of where policy is heading. Mm. Last but not least, um, the area in which I work in delivered the 2016 infrastructure priority list, which really revitalised the project advisory space in terms of the advice we're giving on project investments and how that investment can really be taken to um, funding and implementation. So the list um, in 2016 came up with initiatives, which is really the process we use to identify nationally significant problems or in some cases nationally significant opportunities. Mm. And then actual projects that are ready for funding that have been through a business case evaluation with us mm. and are identified on the list as either a high-priority project or a priority project. Mm. 2016 was was the last time it was published? The infrastructure priority list is a live document. Right. It is a live list. It's on our website all the time. So you've got a top 10. It's um, updated. Well, not quite. It's so you've got, you got a chart. Uh, some people call it a chart, but we really call it a list. I mean, it's a list that identifies national um, investment priorities mm. for Australia in infrastructure, and the list is updated really after every time the board considers new proposals. Wow. 
So is it a, a digital document? I, I mean, is. I've got a hard copy of my desk. It is. But I guess that's outdated now. The hard copy is an important document. Once a year, we produce a hard copy publication. Hmm. And that's really capturing the list at a point in time. And it's been really important, actually, to have that hard copy because I think people forget that the list is a real thing and that the risk is really a tangible product as well. Mm. It makes our advice come real. A lot of people actually want the hard copy because it gives them all the one-page summaries of all the um, projects and proposals in the future pipeline. Mm. Now, am I going to catch you off guard if I ask you what the number one project right now is on your priority list? We don't really have a, a number one project as such. I mean, we work on a range of project evaluations. So at any point in time, state and territory governments or private sector organisations could make submissions to us in terms of business case evaluations, seeking Commonwealth funding in excess of $100 million and also seeking their recognition on the priority list. Mm. At any point in time, we're also engaging with proponents on some projects that might come to us in future as um, business cases. Mm. And that's where we provide advice and guidance on, for example, cost benefit analysis. And once a year, we do the IPL um, update, which is the infrastructure priority list update. Mm. And that's where we actually take a fresh view of the priority list and make sure we some projects we graduate off the list when they're under construction, they get off the list. But it is a numbered list though, isn't it? No, we don't number the lists. We right. don't rank the okay. lists. And there's good reason for that because projects vary in scale mm. and size. They're not directly comparable in that sense. Mm. Okay. I can see why it's not a chart then. No chart. No chart. <laughs> okay. Has, has a stop journalist keep calling it the top 100? Oh, really? The hottest 100, sorry. Well, you might want to call it the hottest 100. <laughs> yeah. Well, I love infrastructure, so I would. Now, Anna, you're an economist. Do you have to tell everybody that? <laughs> yeah. So, so what role do they play in the assessment of infrastructure, economists, that is? Look, a really important role, and people don't really kind of think about it in terms of um, we make economic decisions every day. You know, you had to make an economic decision when you went to buy your lunch today. Am I feeling hungry? What do I want to eat? Mm. What do I fancy tasting? How much budget have I got? So economists do a very similar role in terms of society has unlimited needs and demands, but we have limited resources. So Mm. economists help people to make decisions on how to allocate um, scarce funding and resources. And our job as economists at a project level is really to determine, are these projects actually worthwhile for investing? And what is it they do that makes it worthwhile? Are they going to increase productivity or are they going to improve the quality of life or are they going to improve access to service? Mm. So it's really trying to understand what are the costs and benefits of these projects that will actually deliver real benefits and outcomes for mm. people. So economists, there's just not enough of them though, is there? Really? No, there aren't really that many economists around. I think there's quite a shortage actually, particularly in um, I microeconomics. Think, I, I, think, I think there's a shortage. I think a lot of economists often graduate and want to be on TV talking about unemployment and oh. inflation. So there are probably more macroeconomists around, but microeconomists who are providing advice hmm. on projects and appraisals and things like cost benefit analysis is um, probably in shortage. Mm. Okay, so um, recently uh, I've noticed in New South Wales where we are right now, the, the government is uh, requesting place 
based business cases. And uh, given that you're in the business of assessing business cases, can you tell us a little bit about the trend towards place-based? What difference is a place-based business case as opposed to a a normal business case that we've had here for a number of years? Yeah, look, I think the concept has really kind of evolved from integrated land use and transport planning to ensure that those efficiencies we can get from integrated planning are fully captured in social cost-benefit analysis. And um, if place-based appraisals are done correctly, they are effectively a program business case for a particular area that cover all the investments that go into the area. So, for example, there might be a new hospital, a new um, university that's working with the hospital, but to service that hospital, you might need to build a railway, for example. Hmm. So it's really trying to measure all the costs and benefits related to those investments and to determine whether there are some net benefits. Mm. Are we actually going to get more benefits and costs if we actually captured all those investments at the same time so that we're actually taking a genuine holistic look at how the land use development can actually uh, perform? So it's not just the hospital anymore. It's actually all the supporting infrastructure that's required to make that hospital potentially function at its optimal that's right. And also to capture some of the synergies between different sectors, for example. So we don't just take a silo approach. We actually try and ensure that the synergies and the productivity gains that you could get from having a hospital work with a university are actually captured. And also more tangible stuff such as cost savings. Mm. You know, Can we actually co-locate them on the same campus mm. so that you can actually minimize the land purchase? Mm. Could you lo- co-locate them so that you can actually use similar facilities and you don't have to duplicate? Mm. That makes a lot of sense. It's really trying to think about things in a way that could lead to cost savings but also additional benefits. Yeah, in this age where we're trying to do more with less, uh, it seems like a pretty sensible approach for, for us to be considering multiple uses uh, of uh, of limited assets. Very much so. And it's really consistent with our philosophy of making better use of existing assets. You know, mm. if you're actually going to have an asset there, how can you get more out of it? Mm. And how can we actually not just constantly think about building new things mm. and just disposing things, actually trying to get more longevity out of existing assets. Mm. Okay, so when we're thinking about place, I'm a landscape architect by trade, and I think about all the great things about place. I think about open space networks, I think about activation, retail precincts, arts and uh, the arts community, libraries, um, social cohesion, all these sort of intangible things that go into place that make a place great and sticky and make you want to stay there. So do you think in our business case approach that we are able to quantify some of these elements I just mentioned on projects, you know, like, for example, if it was a park or a tree-lined street, this may promote better social cohesion, connectivity, physical activity, contribute to our resilience response, reduce our urban heat island, uh, make Sydney the most livable city in the world. Do you, do you think we capture some of these values I've just reeled off there in our uh, business cases? Certainly, social cost benefit analysis was designed to capture all the costs and benefits of a particular project, and that includes both quantifiable benefits and non-quantifiable benefits. But it's really important to recognise that sometimes non-quantifiable benefits are actually quantifiable. It's a question of actually using the right methodologies to try and identify and capture them. So one of the things you mentioned is green spaces. I mean, enormous amount of work has been done in the environmental economics area in terms of what people's valuation of green spaces are. Uh, What are they prepared to actually pay to have um, a park? What are they prepared to actually value in terms of a tree? I mean, certainly in some countries in the world, we have valuation of the environment as part of their national GDP, for example. Mm. So in some cases, the 
methods have already been identified. It's really a question of practitioners putting that into practice and actually uh, making those quantifications, mm. and those valuations in particular. I imagine that's pretty hard, though. Do you have to survey people to understand their propensity to spend or pay? That's why you need economists, James. You know, you definitely No, I'm need. serious. I mean... Yeah. Um, look, there are. it certainly is not straightforward. In some cases, you would have to do new research, um, primary research, to go back to the community to understand how they value things, how they compare and contrast between alternatives. Mm. And that's why having options is really important as well, because um, I think most people want to have options. They don't want to be shoehorned into just one option or actually just want to consider one thing. I think having a range of options is really important. And I imagine technology to actually help them understand and visualise um, what those options are uh, and the impact of those options um, will certainly help as well with them understanding the impacts or otherwise or the benefits of a particular development on, on them. That's right. So technology we have now should be able to help us in terms of some of the survey methods mm. in getting better visualisation of what the future might be, mm. what the actual service might be, mm. and how they can then put a value on it. Mm. But I think some things can be done still with fairly rudimentary technology as well. If we actually measure our desire to have amenities and to be close to amenities, very simple accessibility um, costs methods are still available to us to measure how much people are prepared to pay to avoid traveling, um, you know, 50 kilometers for a park mm. or how much would they prefer to pay if they want a park to be near them by five kilometers, for example, mm. or what it would cost for them to actually travel to the nearest shopping center, for example. Mm. Mm. And that includes not just the money you put into, say, petrol and things like that, but it's actually your time as well mm. and the other people's time who are also in the car. Yeah. So collectively, from an opportunity cost point of view, we're trying to measure the total costs involved in accessing these things, mm. whether it's green space, blue space, amenities, transport. Mm. It's really important that the accessibility to having them is actually measured. Yeah. This sounds really hard. Is it done on most business cases you see? Um, some of the work is actually done as part of guidelines and that people can then apply them as standard procedures. Right. But some of it is probably more involved and it's probably not part of your vanilla cost-benefit analysis. Mm. What we try to encourage at IA is that we should be looking to capture all the costs and benefits, mm. and particularly those benefits that are seen as hard to quantify, mm. but in fact really valued by the community and actually could change the selection of uh, different options and yeah, projects. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. Now, I'm going to give you a magic wand and uh, allow you to apply it to either any of the cities you've lived in or any Australian city you choose to essentially apply whatever you wish to that city. So what would you do with that magic wand? Um, I think for all Australian cities, we could probably benefit from having more integrated um, transport systems so that, for example, in my case, I could actually catch a bus straight to the ferry uh, wharf and then jump on a ferry and then catch another bus and connect to work, mm. you know, without hanging around waiting for a bus for mm. 20 minutes and then get to the other end and find that the ferry still not for another 20 minutes. Having those seamless interchanges so that public transport is a genuine alternative to a car, mm. I think it's really important. Mm. And I think having integrated transport is one of the best ways to provide that genuine alternative to a car mm. so that people can use public transport for the entire journey but without lots of waiting around, without, oh, I've just missed the bus on the second connection or standing in a wet bus stop or something like that. Mm. You know, having 
the facilities to provide that interchange is important as well. Hong Kong, for example, you know, one of their busiest stations literally have a cross-platform interchange that mm. takes about five seconds. You get off one train, walk across the platform, the other train turns up. Yeah. It it's literally turns up as you're, you're getting off the other. It turns up too quickly because I can't work out whether it's the train I'm meant to get, oh, so I normally have to leave them. It's not just you. I have short legs, so it takes me a long time to run across the platform. So, yeah. <laughs> yes, I have to kind of really make a bolt for it. If I, mm. But if I miss that one in Hong Kong, the next one comes in about 30 seconds, so it's probably not a long wait. Now, when you go to cities around the world, do you ever just ride the subway uh, just for fun? Oh, it sounds like a confession. Yes, I must confess I do that mm. quite a bit. I do too. Yeah. Just check yeah. it out. The Budapest metro section is quite interesting because it's not very deep and you feel like you can hear people walking above you. Really? Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. It's really just subsurface. That would be cheaper to build. Yeah, I think back in those days it probably was. <laughs> yeah. Right, Anna, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you in your role right now as acting CEO of uh, Infrastructure Australia. You know, I've seen you. You've had the 7.30 report in here today. And you've been in numerous media outlets, and I think you're doing a fantastic job uh, of leading this great organisation. So thank you very much for sparing some time to be with us today on Talking Cities. And I wish you all the best with uh, your future endeavours here at uh, Infrastructure Australia. You're doing a great job, as is the organisation. So thank you very much. Thanks, James. Thanks for having me. 